Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to New Books in Film. I am your host, Joel Cherney. While there are many World War II films, it isn't always possible to be sure of how well the filmmakers met the goal of historical accuracy. For her book, Real War vs. Real War, Veterans, Hollywood, and World War II, Suzanne Broderick talked to a number of actual veterans about specific war films. They shared their memories of the conflict and how well Hollywood captured the action. The book was published in 2015 by Roman and Littlefield. Welcome, Suzanne Broderick. Hi, Suzanne. Thank you for talking to me. Hi, Joe. It's my pleasure. I found your book to be very fascinating. You had a great concept and nicely executed it. Uh, we've seen books on historical accuracy in films. In fact, I have a number of them that I that are favorites of mine, particularly as they relate to Civil War, which is an area of, the, of interest to me. But I like that you were able to find actual World War II veterans to give their perspective on the films. Right. I thought that was really the only way to find out how accurate the Hollywood films were, was to talk to the men who were actually there and lived those experiences that are depicted in the films. Right. And given their ages and things, this was going to be one of those things where there was actual deadline in time. I mean, in order for us to get a real sense still from that period, we've got to keep going with oral histories and other methods to try to get as much information as we can while we still can. Right. Um, some of these interviews were done several years ago when the men weren't quite as old as they are now. Uh, but I was amazed at how accurate their memories were. Uh, even men that were well into their 80s at the point in time when I interviewed them uh, could remember these um, experiences that they had, particularly in combat, because I think they were life-defining moments, something you just don't forget. And they um, were very um, kind to me to relive some of these experiences that I know that were very difficult for them to remember. And most of the time when you hear discussions of veterans, of particularly veterans who were in combat, they, you know, the, the, the general concept is they don't usually want to talk about it or it's hard to get them to go into much depth or detail. So I could imagine that that probably would have been part of the issue as well. Right. Um, none of them really wanted to talk about the blood and guts, um, the actual on-the-ground killing of the enemy or their buddies being killed. I mean, those things, they, they didn't go into great detail. They just um, happened to mention, um, although I'm sure they were very emotionally affected, that a friend of theirs was killed that day or, you know, that um, they were surrounded by enemies and kind of had to fight their way out. So you know that uh, there was a lot of blood, but they didn't dwell on that kind of thing. Before we get more in-depth with the book, let's get a little bit of your background. What are your educational and writing experiences? experiences? I have a master's degree in English, and I have a master's degree in 
history. And uh, I've always been very interested in film, and I was even able to teach film at a community college. But in this project, I was really able to marry my two, well, three, actually, film, history, and writing. And so um, it was just a labor of love for me to do this uh, project. And uh, my previous writing experiences, I have published a lot in the Journal of Film and History. Mm-hmm. And I've done a lot of uh, uh, book reviews and film reviews for them. Uh, one of the chapters of this book actually was published in, the, in that. I've also done some other book reviews for other publications. Uh, right now I'm planning a big project, and I'm hoping to get that off the ground real soon. So what led to this project? I mean, what was the initial stages that made you decide that this was a project that was perfect for you? And were there aspects of any previous work besides what you've already talked about that helped you get this going? Well, um, actually, the town that I live in, Bloomington, Illinois, is is a medium-sized town right now. You know, I I don't know, a combined population of the two uh, adjoining towns is probably 150 or 200,000. When I grew up in this community a long time ago, it was very small, and there were only three theaters in town. And when I was um, a child in the 1950s, it seemed like there was not a whole lot to do except go to the movies. And unfortunately, Disney wasn't uh, turning out movies like they are today, and there weren't that many children movies. So my older sister and the uh, neighborhood kids, we just walked downtown and went to any movie that happened to be showing. And very often in the 50s, there were World War II films. And I noticed um, by the time I was about 10, 11, definitely by 12, that I was paying a lot more attention to these films than my friends who were with me in the theater. They just, I don't know. Um, They just seem to be of great interest to me. Some people like insects. Some people like stars. I seem to like World War II movies. I think many of the people I've talked to in various uh, situations related to their books, they talk about how how long they've had the interest, and I suspect that has to be the first reason that you write anything. Right. I mean, it it was a labor of love, and most of the film that I refer to in the book, I saw, oh, many, many times. I'd watch them over and over and over again to get just the quote that I thought was appropriate for the book or just to be able to characterize the um, actors as they portrayed soldiers. And so the movies, you know, I watched them over and over and over again, which was not a problem except for one film. Which Would you one? like to hear which film yeah. it was? <laughs> which film was that? <laughs> it was Lynn Talkers with Nicholas Cage. <laughs> which, of that course, film. we'll talk about a little bit more later, but is also the <laughs> most current of the films that you you reviewed. And yeah. just, I remember the previews for it, and I, oh, man. I never yeah, saw the film, yourself. but just the previews alone told me this one was not going to be. No, <laughs> no, you really don't. Uh... I don't want to spend your time watching that. Because yeah, most of the films you used were from the 40s and it were older films. There's only a couple of them that were more current, which uh, is interesting that that means the films that were coming out of Hollywood right after the war were 
based on a lot of the comments you received from veterans, were pretty, if not accurate, certainly they had the right spirit to them. Well, I think that's exactly true because the audience for those films were the World War II generation, and you just couldn't lie to them. Um, The people who were going to those films in the late 40s and during the 50s had served in World War II, and Hollywood couldn't feed them a bunch of... um, you know, baloney that they knew was fake. So they were held to a higher standard. And also, as I mentioned in the book, many of the um, Hollywood uh, professionals who were producing these films had served in the war. Directors, producers, um, even the Hollywood movie stars had actually been in the war And so they weren't about to try to pass off, you know, some Hollywood glitz as the real thing, and they knew what the real thing was. Which may also explain why most of the films are from that period that you used, because they tended to be the ones that were more trustworthy, so to speak, it looks like. Well, I think so, too. Um, Some of the more recent ones... um, I don't know how accurate they are. For example, something like Monuments Men, I enjoyed that, but I don't know how accurate that is. Um, That's a George Clooney film. And Hearts War with Bruce Willis, uh, I watched it, and I thought it was kind of hard to swallow just from what I knew about prisoner of war camps. But I went to a conference where there was a man who had acted as a, He's a historian of the specialty of prisoner of war camps, and he acted as like a technical director. And in his words, they had a good movie going there until Bruce Willis showed up. And then I guess his star power kind of took over. Yeah, I've read that a number of times about a number of movies. There's been a couple of books that have talked about historical films, and, and a lot of times if you read them, they talk about how the producers and the writers had certain things in mind, but as time went on and other people got involved, suddenly some of the best ideas sort of got lost. Right. Um, I think you're probably true there. Um, the I don't know what the idea was for Wind Talkers, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I've been forced to watch that film probably four or five times, and I still don't know what it's, what, you know, <laughs> what the thesis or the purpose or what one was supposed to take away from that film. There was certainly nothing about the Code Talkers. Right. It was more about Nicolas Cage. Which goes back to your Bruce Willis point about right. it's the yeah. star part. The, the star's more important, so sometimes that's what comes through. It seems so in those two films. Now, your introduction in first chapter, you go into more detail about how the issues were related to Hollywood and the historian. Um, You talk about those issues and how in the past they were not something anybody thought about, but in more recent times have become more important, both particularly in the historian profession. Um, And how did you use Oliver Stone as an example to help present the topic at the beginning there? Well, you know, when I first started uh, working on this project and I wanted to work on film and history, it was difficult to even find a professor who would act as an advisor because most of um, history professors just poo-pooed. Oh, I mean, they didn't even think about it. They didn't give it a second thought. Just, 
oh, it's Hollywood. It's not history. It's just Hollywood. And so it was even difficult to get somebody who would take this seriously. Um, the Oliver Stone, boy, I don't know. Uh, that's kind of Oliver Stone's vision of history. And I don't know. There have been a lot of historians who have written about his films based on historical events that seem to believe that it's, once again, it's it's about maybe 10% history and 90% Oliver Stone. Although I appreciate him um, making films about historical events because um, people don't read history anymore. They see movies. And so if they see a film about um, a historical event, it, it could pick their interest and they could go do some more serious reading on the topic. Yeah, I've noticed that uh, he definitely has an interest in history because he even did a documentary series for Showtime called The Untold History. I think that was called what it was called of the United States. And I watched parts of it and I would find, I mean, it was interesting, but without going in depth, I'm just not sure. He definitely has a, a point of view. I don't want to call it a slant because that's not fair, but a point of view as to what he's trying to say. And he definitely worked hard. And I've seen most of his quote unquote historical films, so I can, I understand totally what you mean, but I think you're right. He's a, probably one of the most well-known examples of a filmmaker who is attempting to make films with some historical background. And there's no question he's also one of the most controversial who do it. Definitely. Um, I I was alive and well in a voting age when Richard Nixon was in office, and I pretty much disapproved and despised him. But the Oliver Stone film almost made me feel sorry for Nixon. Which I think was because I'm I'm pretty much agree. I'm when I'm probably close to the same way with you. I do remember Nixon quite well and Watergate and uh, in uh, Vietnam, right? So there's no question that the film Nixon he was trying to at least present why he was trying to come up with a psychological reason for why he was the way he was, and somehow a lot of that seemed to be behind what he was trying to show in the film. Well, you know, like I think we both believe that Stone has his own agenda and um, it's not always necessarily to accurately portray history. Right. Are there other writers, though, that you that you consulted or reviewed as part of this project that you think are doing good work as far as writing about historic history and, and films that... Oh, you know, absolutely. Um my mentor, actually, was Peter C. Rollins, who wrote one of the very first books, and it was called Hollywood as Historian. And it was one of the very first books that tied films and history together in a serious way. Um, Robert Brent Toplin, um, you know, gosh, I could look at my bookcase. These guys, when I, when I found these books, it was like, oh, my God, you know, these people are speaking my language. Up until then, I, I, oh, those books are all put away. But, yeah, there's a lot, a lot of really good books. Like um, like I said, Peter C. Rollins. Um, oh, gosh, I'm trying to think. Oh, John O'Connor. John O'Connor and Peter C. Rollins were the ones that I found first that 
first started writing, uh, O'Connor's book was American History, American Film. And um, they dealt with, you know, how American history was viewed in American films. And Peter's book was the same. Robert Brent Toplin uh, wrote a book called Hollywood is Near, in which he showed how, you know, Hollywood films reflected the period, excuse me, the historical periods in which they were made. It's good to know that, uh, as you pointed out, is that now people are writing about it, and even though it took a little bit of time, I agree with you totally about uh, that this is an important aspect of, especially because of the way people view film these days as far as its, its importance. To oh, absolutely. And um, there was a symposium done, I think, in the early 90s, and several of these scholars got together, and um, they produced papers, and one of them said that historians are going to be out of business if they don't start telling their stories in a way that um, appeals to the populace. Because just sitting around in our ivory towers, uh, talking to each other about history is going to mean the end of the profession. So history needed to be presented in a way that it would interest the general public, and film certainly does that. It ends up being 10 films that you used. How did you develop the list of films that you chose to feature in the book? Well, um, I, well I've just watched so many. I, <laughs> I watched them all so I knew what they were, and when I was fortunate enough to find a veteran who I thought um, may have experienced some of the things that were depicted in the film, um, you know, I contacted the veteran and and asked them to watch the movies. But uh, the way I chose them is I'd seen them all. I mean, it, World War II films were my thing. So I just watched them all. I knew which ones were good. I knew which ones were bad. And um, so I just seen them, and I knew what was in them. Like I said, some people like to study insects. I like World War II films. Well, based on what you're saying, though, that means that all of the films you used are or you studied or included, were films that people can still see today, which is good to know. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And they should. (laughs) Um, I think that when um, high school teachers are teaching about World War II, they should go back and take some of those films, some of the ones that were made for propaganda purposes that were shown on the home front, um, that were made um, to uh, encourage people to support the war, to buy war bonds, to roll bandages, that sort of thing. And then also the ones that came later that had, like I said in one of the chapters, once the dust was settled and you could go back and kind of uh, have time for reflection, some of those films made in the late 40s and early 50s are... um, you know, excellent, excellent films. 12 O'Clock High, for example, you know, is is an amazing film with Gregory Peck. And one of the men that I talked to who had been a pilot of a B-17, he said, as far as he was concerned, that was the only film (laughs) about, you know, the 8th Air Force and their bombing missions over Europe. And... So 
the men that actually flew these missions over Europe and over Germany really endorsed 12 o'clock high. And I could, I'm trying to think, I think 12 o'clock high was made in the mid-1950s, I think. No, actually you have it at 1949, but... Uh, oh, really? Yeah. I'm looking really? at the list of the books directly from your oh, introduction. Oh, okay. But, but, that seems kind of early. Well, that's okay. Um, okay. <laughs> I believe you if that's what it was. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, where did you, how did you de- figure out or where did you develop your list of veterans to contact? How did you actually come in contact with people that you could uh, sort of use? I know you said this was these interviews were done over periods of time, so obviously at some point in the past you must have figured out, okay, how do I reach out to veterans? Right. What was your process? <laughs> well, the very first uh, man that I interviewed was my own uncle, Harry Miller, who was in the Battle of the Bulge. And he was drafted when he was 18. And um, (laughs) he came out of his basic training for um, a vacation over the Christmas holiday period and had just arrived home for his leave when he got a telegram that told him to report back that the Germans had broken through. And that was the Battle of the Bulge. So he was an 18-year-old. Uh, draftee in the Battle of the Bulge, and I, he, there were long periods of time when he didn't talk about the war at all, and I did kind of have to uh, coax him. Uh, he's a very nice, kind, considerate, and agreeable man, but, you know, I knew I was kind of pushing the envelope a little bit to get him to open up as much as he did, but I knew he, you know, all of my cousins knew that Uncle Harry was in the war. He was decorated. I mean, he was on the ground. He was an infantryman. Uh, We knew that um, his wife was proud of his war record, and we knew that, you know, he was the real thing. And so when I decided to do this, I had watched the film Battleground, and I started doing a little research on Battleground, and they claimed, the producers, the directors, said it was very accurate. So this was the first film I dealt with, and I gave a copy of it to my Uncle Harry and asked him to watch it, and then I interviewed him. Um, The other ones were, man, uh, Lynn Simpson, who um, was in the Pacific in combat zone for 30 months, was a fellow volunteer. Uh, I, I volunteered at the Historical Society here locally, and so did he. And so he was kind enough to spend an afternoon with me and uh, tell me about his experiences. Um, we have, it's called Prairie Aviation Museum out near our local airport here. And uh, I found out through a friend that um, they had interviewed on tape many, many pilots from World War II. And when I went out there to the museum, they were very cooperative and told me, I could take as many tapes as I wanted to, and I watched probably a dozen, and I selected two men. Uh, the one that I spoke of earlier, Jim Oberman, was, he was like a 22-year-old captain of a B-17, and he flew all of his missions. And the other one, Ernest Thorpe, um, was a B-17 co-pilot, and he had to ditch his plane in the North Sea, was picked up and taken to... Um, the prison camp from which the great escape was made. And 
So that movie is kind of a fascinating film. And he, you know, he corroborated all the re- kind of outlandish things that went on. Um, I said, oh, come on, you know, how did they make those, you know, you know, those German uniforms out of the scraps and blankets and whatever they had? And he just said, oh, we had wonderful tailors in the camp, you know. And he talked about the scroungers and, you know, you could get anything practically if you had the price. And um, he said that everything about the great escape rang true to him except for Steve McQueen's character. <laughs> and in the book I write that Steve McQueen really does seem like a 1960s rebel with a cause, but um, he was just too insolent. And um, Mr. Thorpe said that, you know, the guards would have knocked a lot of that rebel out of Steve McQueen. He wouldn't have been such a wise guy. Yeah, I've and, seen yeah, The Great Escape is an int- I mean, I've seen it a couple of times, and it's it, 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 they, they obviously claim that it is accurate or has accuracies to accuracy to it. So it's interesting to hear the the, the information you receive from the veterans that that there is sense of that in there. Although unfortunately, the ending is all too accurate as well for for a yeah. number of the prisoners. Um, right. Um, one thing that was amazing is like Mr. Thorpe told me that they put on. Because this was, they were officers, right? They were all airmen. They were guarded by the German Luftwaffe. And in the book, I say it was kind of a fraternity of pilots, really. And um, because they were officers, they didn't have to work. That was the Geneva Geneva Convention regulation. And um, they were putting on plays in the camp, and they were renting their costumes from a theatrical costume agency in Berlin. And uh, he said that he tried out, he tried out, he was very disappointed because he tried out to be in a play that was going to be an all-American production, but he didn't get the part. And also, let's see, um, I was trying to think he said something else that was kind of amazing. Oh, well, I'm sorry, I can't remember right now, but, um, oh, one thing he did say was that when he got there, the British officers, the British soldiers, the British airmen were a lot more interested in escape than the Americans because by the time he got there, and I think it was in 1944, late 1944, the Americans knew the war was going to be over soon. And so most of them felt like they'd done their duty, they'd flown so many missions, they'd done this, and they knew the war would be over soon. Whereas many of the Brits had been um, captured at Dunkirk. Mm -hmm. And so they kept feeling like um, they needed to be more relevant to the war effort. I I mean, I don't want it to sound like Americans just weren't interested, but it was the Brits who were willing to risk their lives when the Americans that got there late 1944 knew the Allies were just a matter of miles away. And so it wasn't going to be um, that grand of a of an, a war effort to try to escape. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, when you think about it, except for certain situations, it's sort of like World War One, where the British and the French were fighting it long before the United States was involved. And then World War Two, even though the United States 
got in in 41, it wasn't till after the uh, initial landings, particularly at D-Day, that suddenly Americans were around in great numbers and therefore could be captured in the first place. Right, absolutely. And, and many of those uh, British soldiers or airmen had been sitting there for two and three years in prison camp by the time the first Americans showed up. Now, I asked you this, or we talked about this briefly a second ago, but I wanted to mention it again. Given their ages, did did the veterans have problems in general remembering some of these things, or was it one of those things where many of these ideas and, and incidents came back to them very quickly? Uh, most of them, their memories seem to be very accurate. Um, some minor details, like maybe... Um, Another soldier's last name would elude them, just like uh, Larry's last name eluded me. But like I said, these were life-defining moments. This was a life-defining period for these men, and they remembered well. They remembered quite well. I didn't, you know, they didn't recall every single detail. Um, They hit the highlights. I think that perhaps in my giving them the films beforehand to watch, before I talked to them, it may have jogged their memory about some things. For example, um, I think in one of the South Pacific or the Pacific War films, um, there is a discussion of soldiers having malaria. And Mr. Simpson, who was in the Pacific for so many months, talked about, you know, everybody had malaria. He said if they evacuated a soldier that had malaria, there wouldn't be any Americans or British soldiers in the Pacific at all. He said they had to take their quinine regularly and that I guess it was pretty bitter tasting, sort of a hard pill to swallow. And so an officer watched every soldier take his quinine to make sure he actually took it. And, um, well, like... um, My Uncle Harry, when I asked him about the film Battleground, one of the first things he said was, well, it was the same snow. You know, he remembered the snow. He was there at Christmas time. He was there in the worst winter in Europe in I don't know how many years during the Battle of the Bulge. And so I think a lot of the details of the film may have jogged their memories a bit. Oh, the sounds, the sounds, the Holitzers, Mm -hmm. that for some of them, those Holitzers, um, like my Uncle Harry, boy, that really brought back memories. He, he almost couldn't stand to listen to those. Now, one of the films that you chose, or one of the stories that you chose, was Memphis Bell, in which there were actually two versions, uh, 1944 right. and 1990. What kind right. of differences, or how were the differences, versions viewed by the veteran or veterans that you interviewed about that film? Well, um, the William Wyler film, uh, and William Wyler was one of those very successful Hollywood directors who, I'm not sure if he was drafted or enlisted, but at least he was in the service during the war, and his job was to make these propaganda films. He He made the film The Memphis Bell. He rode along on one of the missions, and he lost because of um, lack hitting the plane, he lost the hearing in one of his ears. One of his cameramen were killed. Um, and the two pilots that I talked to from that, from the European theater, 
said they thought that film was very accurate, very, very accurate. Um, they pointed out things that I hadn't even noticed, like how the men up in uh, the air had to plug in their suits to keep warm. <laughs> you know, it wasn't the cabins or weren't um, heated, and so they had heated suits they plugged in when they got in the ship and plugged it when they unplugged when they got out. Um, there were oh, I asked them about um, a lot of the men had like um, good luck pieces, and he said, oh yeah, you know, everybody had their good luck, their prayers, um, praying and touching their rabbit's feet, and he said that that one was very accurate, the William Wyler, the first one, and again, this was going to be a film that, you know, the men that had actually experienced what the Memphis Bell depicted were going to see, so they, you know, it was, it was a real flight. The one that his daughter made, remade in the 90s, Catherine Weiler, um, was okay, except both the men said everything that could go wrong on a mission went wrong on that one mission that was in the film. Because in the film, they just they do one mission, just like the earlier Memphis Bell, but on that one, every absolutely everything that could go wrong in a mission went wrong. So they thought it was kind of... A lot of it was for uh, dramatic license and not as accurate as the original. One of the things that's been my experience when I watch films that are historical in nature that are supposed to take place either actual stories or stories that are based in in past in any way, shape, or form, it's it's the filmmakers who worry about the details, who care about making sure of accuracy as closely as possible, even with things that you might not necessarily always pay that much attention to or even notice, but their belief is you have to get those details right because you don't want something to be sticking out uh, strangely because it's not accurate. Right. Um, and I think that like those that first generation, I call them the first generation of films, were accurate because you know, the the actors that were playing those parts, a lot of them knew, this is, this is what you wore, this is how you acted, this is what I did when I was there. In, um, in Battleground, um, the star, Ben Johnson, wears a knife stuck in his pant leg. And my uncle said, oh, yeah, I had one in my pant leg, everybody did. But while I'm watching it, I'm thinking, why does he have a knife? He's a rifleman. Why does he have a knife stuck there in his pant leg? My uncle verified, yeah, we all had them. We all carried them like that. So, yeah, it's that detail thing that uh, uh-huh. makes something more believable or more seemingly truthful. Right, definitely. And some of the films were better than others. In um, Wind Talkers, mm-hmm. That's, I was getting ready to come to Wind Talkers. That's what my yeah, subject was going to um, be next anyway, so go on. The, the Wind Talker that I talked to, um, at a powwow, actually, I drove over to an area about 40 or 50 miles away and uh, interviewed him during a powwow. And he was very disgusted because one of the Navajo co-stars, he wasn't the main character, but the secondary, he was chunky was a little bit overweight, and um, my co-talker, and right now, see, names are eluding me, I'm really sorry, when I, I know, 
I typed his name so a million times when I was writing that chapter, but right now I can't remember it. But um, he he was insulted because he said no, none of the Marines were overweight. You know that their training had really got them down. They were all in ship shape, and he thought that um, showing this one kind of chubby Marine was inaccurate. He didn't like that. Thomas Begay or Begay, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Oh, yeah, it's Thomas Begay. Thank you. No problem. So let's let's go into more depth about wind talkers, partly because we want to make sure everybody understands. If you want to see a bad one, this is the one to see. But uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so obviously you had, to, was it hard to find a code talker to be able to, to interview? You know, it was just a fluke. I was afraid I was going to have to go out to, you know, Navajo territory. And I just happened to to get an email or see a flyer or something that said in one of the neighboring towns about 40 miles away, um, there was going to be a powwow and the guest of honor was going to be a former co-talker. So that's how I found Mr. Begay. And um, I mean, it was just luck. That's how I got him. They're dying off at a, at a very speedy rate right now. Um, but I was fortunate. I think Mr. Begay was one of the younger. He was 16. He said that the Marines were very um, creative with your ages or lax with checking birth certificates and that sort of thing. He was 16 when he enlisted in the Marines. And so he was he was one of the probably one of the younger men. And also after after World War II, um, he rejoined the service and he went into the army and he was in Korea. But I think that his military service probably kept him in pretty good shape. So you know, even though he was an older man, he was you know, he was in really good shape. So you mentioned obviously the weight issues and the fact that you know, you had mentioned that the Marines would, that, that from Mr. Begay, he would have said that, that, he said that was one thing that was obvious. And we've already talked about the fact that the film was more the Nicolas Cage story, not so much the, you know, Nicolas Cage became more important than the story. But what were some of the other issues that uh, uh, Mr. Begay had a concerning wind talkers? Oh, he had quite a few. Now, let me stop... Oh, well, you know, um, I hope this isn't a stereotype. (laughs) It may be. But he was not very um, communicative, very forthcoming. And when I asked him about wind talkers, he just gave me a thumbs down. And, um, you know, he didn't like anything about it. Um, He wasn't real specific about it because... um, I just, you know, Native Americans um, perhaps are just not that talkative. But, you know, I I did read articles written by um, people who had worked with Navajos and, like, in missions and stuff, and they said that um, the character, the main Navajo character was just so not Navajo. He didn't behave like any Navajo they'd ever seen. That, you know, he was very... Smiley and wanted to join in and joke around and with the other Marines, whereas generally 
um, young Navajo men don't behave that way. And so they found um, a couple of the um, articles I'd read by people who'd actually worked with Navajos, and even during that period said it was very uncharacteristically Navajo, the way the Navajos in that show, in that movie, behaved. I suspect he felt the thumbs down was all he needed to say, that there really wasn't much, it wasn't worth spending much time even discussing the film as far as he was concerned. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And he said that he kind of had offered himself as a a consultant for the film, and and, um, he said they hired, I don't know if this is true or not, I never checked it out, but he said they hired someone who... um, didn't even speak Navajo to um, act as the consultant for the film. So, I mean, he just, like I said, thumbs down. That just said it all as far as he was concerned. Let's also talk, though, about, I mean, like I say, most of the book is based on those, in the initial films that you spoke with the veterans about. But let's talk about your last chapter where you actually interviewed a couple of the women who were, as you say, toiling on the home front and gave them and talked about some of the films that hopeful that hopefully related that time period uh well so what was your conversations with them like and and it was a good chapter why did you feel like it was the perfect way to end the book <clears throat> well they were the last ones that I interviewed <laughs> so that's how I ended the book um Marge Milberg um Mrs. Milberg uh, I I found her through the, a man whose office was next door to mine, went to a church, and he knew her and said, oh, she had quite an experience during the war. I contacted her and talked to her. She was um, from a small town uh, not too far from this community where I live, and she had been like a school teacher. When the war came along, uh, the butcher was drafted, so she learned to cut meat and took the butcher's place, and then um, she and a friend went up uh, north to Joliet, Illinois, which is not too far from Chicago, and there is a munitions factory there that they worked at, and they were very, it was she and a friend of hers, and they were very young, and once she realized how dangerous it was that, you know, a spark or, you know, just practically a wrong move, the whole place could go up in smoke, um, she and her friend really had um, the guts. They hopped a Greyhound bus from Illinois and went out to California and worked in the um, airplane industry out there. And the living arrangements that she explained were exactly like they were on that Ginger Rogers movie, Tender Comrade, mm-hmm. where um, women pulled their resources and lived in a large house. and um, But um, according to Mrs. Melberg, it was even kind of more um, regimented than that, that um, I don't know if it was the military or the airplane uh, manufacturers who found them a house, but it was a mansion. I mentioned in the book that they were living in a mansion, and a car um, picked them up, and took them to work and drove them home. And so the living arrangements were several women living together in a house was exactly like the Ginger Rogers film, Tender Comrade. 
And the only thing that, oh, Ginger Rogers would go off on these, it was during the war, but man, she would go off on these patriotic um, speeches and that almost made you sick. <laughs> Sorry to say that. I mean, it, they were so corny. Mm-hmm. And um, so the only thing good about that film was it kind of started Robert Ryan's career. And he was extremely handsome in that film. And, and Ginger Rogers was very corny. But the living experiences were very much like Mrs. Melberg's. And she, Mrs. Melberg talked a lot about the security um, at the plant where she worked. She worked in the office, but, you know, there were certain areas that you were restricted from. Um, they checked your lunchbox when you came in every day and when you left every night. And you weren't supposed, you had to sign something, it seems like, not to talk about your work or what you were doing or where you worked. And um, I found that very interesting. Of course, the film, Since You Went Away, is the World War II home front film. And so um, I talked to my mother, Lucille Broderick, because she kind of lived that experience during the war. My dad enlisted, leaving my mother and my much, much older sister at home on the home front. And she was living in a community situation as well. She was living with her in-laws, and her sister-in-law was still living there because her husband was in the service. So they would pull their ration stamps and be able to get some food. Um, she went to work in a factory here locally that had been, uh, they made furnaces, I think. And she just said that she got involved in quote, unquote, government work. She never knew what she was doing. She was calibrating um, tools that I guess the men were using to produce whatever it was they were producing, but she always just called it government work. And I never questioned her. I never asked her what they were doing. But like I mentioned before, my um, colleague whose office was right next door to mine uh, was a retired Air Force colonel and very interested in the war and the Air Force and local history. And he said they were making switches for bombers. Mm. They were making parts, small parts for bombers. So that's what my mom did. And... um, so I got an idea of what it was like on the home front, you know, um, short dresses, no nylons, food rations, uh, you know, um, relying on family for child care because we went to work. And um, so it was a lot like many of the home front films that you saw, that I saw at least. Right. Yeah, I, one of the things that I... I'm glad that we see now, particularly with historical writing, and yours is an example of it, is that so often when we talk about war in you know, the history, uh, when there's discussion of war, so much of it is based talking about the battles and the fighting and that stuff. And yet some of these other things are just as important, what was going on at home. And I know I've taught a survey course in uh, 20th century history a couple of times, and I made sure that... I tried whenever could to, to try to talk a little bit about what home life was like because most of the time, especially now this far away from it, 
it often gets left out. And yet what was during the time they were consistently being told that what they were doing was incredibly important too. And I think that's worth uh, remembering and saying. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was uh, the third front, the home front. And uh, one thing that's really interesting is in the film, The Life and Times of Rosie the Riveter. The documentary, right? Right, it's a documentary. I mean, young women today, like my students, these young women who, you know, the world is their oyster practically. They can do and be anything they wanted. The way women were treated um, as second-class citizens in these jobs that they had, even though they were doing them and doing them as well as men, they were still discriminated against. These girls, they just couldn't believe it. What? They treated them like that? They, you know, they said these things to them. They didn't want them there. And young women today just can't believe um, the battles that their grandmothers or great-grandmothers faced during that time. And so I think it's good for them to see stuff like that. It's good that they don't have to fight those same battles, although they still have their own battles they have to fight. But it is also good for them to uh, realize that, not just to... uh, obviously these examples, but we see it with other kinds of examples such as other civil rights activities. Absolutely. I mean, um, the generations today owe a huge huge debt of gratitude to those previous generations who really put themselves out there. I mean, literally, their lives on the line. And um, I think it's sad when young kids today don't know the history. They're more than willing to exercise their rights, take their rights for granted, but they don't know how they got them and what people had to endure to ensure that these children of theirs, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren have the rights that they deserve. Basically, then, you've covered a large section. You covered a lot of the different uh, situations, both in the war, as you pointed out, prisoners of war, uh, what it was like on the home front. Is there any areas that you would have liked to have covered that you weren't able to, either a film or because you couldn't find somebody that you felt really could have helped you better understand that particular film? Yes. I I really would have liked to have been able to interview women who had served, um, particularly nurses. There's great movies about nurses. Um, So Proudly We Hail with Claudette Colbert is one. And um, there are other later films about nurses that were taken prisoner in the Philippines, you know, that had been on Corregidor. And um, there's other films about women who served. And I just was unable. The book was published before I finally found out that a girl I went to high school with, mother, um, was a meteorologist that was working on you know, finding the best date for the D-Day landing. I didn't know that. (laughs) Um, But I was unable to find, I I had a colleague at one point who was teaching nursing, and she had had an aunt that served on um, a ship, a hospital ship off of Italy. But unfortunately, by that point in time, her aunt was um, beyond interviewing. So... I didn't get a chance to talk to her, but I'd love to talk to women who actually served overseas. Well, it's great that you were able to talk to the people that you did, because as I mentioned earlier on, 
that's an important aspect, and I, you, you always hope that with major events that these kind of projects are going on. That because as time goes on and people start to get older, and you know, like for example, nowadays it's impossible. There are no World War One veterans left. Well, no, that's uh-huh. going to happen uh, sooner than we would like for uh-huh. World War Two veterans as well. And I'm hoping that the people are continuing to do those kind of projects for later events. And 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 so I think that's you one know, of the reasons I found what you did so interesting. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And one thing I wanted to say, and um, I hate to say this, but the Vietnam generation, which is my generation, is now, you know, in their 50s or 60s. And I remember when I was young, even before Vietnam or after Vietnam, I can't remember, but I'd see these World War II veterans you know, sitting at the mall in the shopping center, holding their wives' purses and sitting, you know, on benches. And I'd walk by and I'd think, those men saved democracy, <laughs> you know. And now they're going, oh, look at that old geezer sitting over there with the purse, you know. And I'm saying, hey, kids, you know, you wouldn't have the world you have today without those quote-unquote old geezers. So you show them a great deal of respect. And I think within the next 10 or 20 years, you know, Vietnam veterans are going to be in their 70s, 60s or 70s. And so I would like the younger generation to respect those men who went through hell in Vietnam or in our name, in our name, you know. So um, a war I didn't much appreciate, but, you know, they went over there and they lived through hell because our country sent them there. So so you said you have a project in development. I don't know whether you're interested in going into any detail or not, but uh, you have other sure, I can tell. Sure, I can tell you because <laughs> once I get it out in the open, then nobody can steal my idea, right? <laughs> uh, what I'm interested in, and once again, this goes back to you know my early days going to the three movie theaters in my community. And I noticed that by the time I was getting a little older, in the oh, mid-late 50s, early 60s, up until the mid-60s, there were these huge films shot on location. And many of them were shot in Italy. And something like Sayonara shot in Japan. Um, there was, a, well, GI Blues, of course, with Elvis in Germany. And I, the research that I've done said that a lot of these films are called runaway romances, um, were shot on location in Europe or in Japan for economic purposes. But, you know, I'm doing some research and I'm going, my thesis is I'm going to try to prove that um, not only was it economics, but there was also uh, kind of an attitude of kiss and makeup. Um, the war is over. And some of these films that were made, like Sayonara or Rome Adventure or, geez, I'm trying to think of the millions of films that were made in Italy, act like a travel log for those beautiful countries. And so not only is it, oh, let's understand our former enemies and make up, it's like, hey, you know, the 1950s Americans were seeing more... Um, prosperity than they, they had in some time, and people were going abroad. So I think the films are serving as a cultural impetus to get Americans to 
try to understand our former enemies, you know, forgive and forget, and also to um, Americans who had been isolationists now had some money to travel abroad and see other um, cultures. And so that's kind of what I want to prove with those films, was that it wasn't only economic purposes for making those, it was also cultural and perhaps even political. Mm. Well, that sounds interesting. I hope uh, you continue to have good luck in going forward with your project, and uh, maybe we'll have a chance to talk again when that uh, book makes it out. Well, I hope so. I but, certainly hope so. But thanks for talking to me, Suzanne. Your well, interview, you, your interview subjects, it. it presented a it. great view of these issues of historical accuracy in film, and I think you really you presented some great stories from the people who actually experienced the events. Oh, they were. I mean, after I would interview one of these men, I was just so full of their stories that I was going around telling everybody I knew what they said. So it was, like I said, it was really a labor of love. So, And I'm glad to get their stories out there. And one thing I wanted to mention also, Joe, before we say goodbye, is that none of these men claim to be heroes. None of them were, you know, blowing their own horns. Well, all of them said the military trained us. They trained us very well to do our jobs. They sent us overseas to do our jobs, and that's what we did. Right. And nobody ever said that they were heroes or that they were extraordinarily brave. They just did what they were trained to do and what they knew they had to do. Right. And thank God they did. Right. Well, thanks again, and I really enjoyed talking to you, and you definitely did a great job of presenting uh, your your points and and I'm, I hope people will check out the book and hopefully just as importantly go back and watch the films these days oh. it's so easy to get our hands on these things either on you know in video or Turner Classic Movies I mean and, and other similar channels that give us a chance to see these as they were filmed oh yes and there are so many of them I see ones every now and then I'll run into some on you know uh, cable television that I've never even heard of so mm. They couldn't be. They're not that good, though. Okay, well, Joe, thank Thank you very very much. much. I really appreciate your taking this time out to talk to me. Thanks to Suzanne for the book, as well as her experiences with talking to the veterans. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more new books in film.